0: I think William should kick it off, being that he knows more about elevator industry and then, you know, we can uh, pick his comments apart. Yeah,
1: he's <laughs> Yeah, okay, I'm in for that. I like That's it. That's why you're wrong. <laughs> yes, I don't Get know what's right.
0: Yeah, they never painted those elevators
2: that color blue. <laughs> It still sound like you're in a bucket.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you're in a
3: bucket. I am. This is the Den
1: Bucket. You're listening to the Crossing Gate, the official podcast of the Twin Cities Division of the National Model Railroad Association. The topics and discussions are about the world's greatest hobby, model railroading. Here are your hosts, Thomas Kescher and Ken Zeska. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Crossing Gate Podcast. Tonight, I'm joined by Greg Dahl. Hello. Joe Binnish. Good evening. David Hamilton. Hello. Mike Jordan. Hello. William Sampson. Hello, everybody. Ken Zeska. Good evening. And I'm your host, Thomas Gazer. We are going to discuss grain elevators and model railroading, basically the relationship of grain and agriculture, and that why 99% of layouts will have some form of grain elevator from the country co-op to a huge inner city concrete silos. Now we'll throw this to you, William, because you actually worked in one of these elevators. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, I worked uh, at Purity Oats off of Jackson Street in Central in Minneapolis. I worked there for a couple of summers, Uh, It's a good job for a young kid. It was way overpaid for what I was actually doing. But uh, I got to rail fan. I would take night shifts because guys didn't want to work the night shifts in the summer. So having that opportunity, got to see the rail switch come in, actually see how the whole operation functions. Now, Purity Oath, from a grain elevator standpoint, was actually a mill. So they did have elevators, which most of us as modelers, we've got an elevator of some capacity, whether it's just a true storage or maybe it's a mill, but you've got to still kind of tell the story about what that building represents. Having worked at General Mills, we were creating flour for Kix and Cheerios. So 50% of the Kix and Cheerios flour was made out of Purity Oats and the other half was made out of Fridley, which was uh, just up the line uh, near North Town Yard. The commodity itself tells a lot. So in product is oats, out product was flour. And then everything that happens in between, what do you do with the byproduct? Well, they would shove that either into a semi-trailer or into a hopper, and it went down to the uh, the U of M, and they would burn it, and they'd use that for heat. Well, that was what they were doing with those cars. So some more rattier cars, the older cars that were coming in that weren't in great shape, they weren't going to be hauling something that was going to be consumed. So you've got a little bit more tired freight cars going into the material handling. And then you go to the flower side, and you've got your end product. So you've got to have a car that gets cleaned. And then the end product that comes out, that gets pulled out, is going to be obviously the flour that was going down to the plants, making the kicks and Cheerios. And then of course your inbound is your, your oats. So you have cars that are coming in and they're at the at the headhouse getting unloaded. And then that obviously fills up your silos. So that's kind of a summary as to what I did when I worked with General Mills. That intrigued me to incorporate that onto my railroad. And I feel like that has really told a story in regards to how I can operate now because I've got a wash rack and the wash rack or that that clean out area is to clean out that air slide to get it ready for food. And that's only an instance if they got one that hadn't gotten cleaned out. Uh, Otherwise, the railroad could send in a clean one to order. But that started telling me all these things that could be happening on my railroad. And that story can actually be told then through your operations. Now you guys, I mean, as far as operators, I know we all to some extent have operated on railroads that have elevators. Do you have experience in regards to going from a wash rack to put it into being loaded or any of that type of or is that too in the weeds? And I'll throw it to you, Jokes. I know you've operated a ton of railroads. Is that getting a little bit too nitty-gritty, or are we are we talking about something that is actually capable of doing it and it is fun to do because you've even operated my railroad and i've implemented some of those nuances and hopefully they're not new nu- nuisances
2: no not nuisances i find that those kind of things fascinating and so cool time in the 50s when all the real modelers operate you bring in a box car of say to a country elevator and the box car is empty now it has to be coopered so put in the grain doors and then when they're ready to ship it out you load them and off they go so it's not just a shove it in and then it's loaded the next day and off it goes. It's it's kind of a process. And the same thing with your modern hoppers. They get cleaned and graded and, and ready to go so that when they have material ready to ship out, it can be sent in there. Again, I find that stuff fascinating. I wish that more guys could do a little bit more of that research and figure it out so that we can operate that way.
5: Yeah, you know, that's a great point, Joe. And in the uh, 70s, the Sioux Line actually had a special truck that would drive around the yard and clean out boxcars and prepare them for shipping out. You had to deliver a car that was suitable. So the uh, the truck had a power washer in it and a couple guys. They'd go in there and they'd clean out that boxcar. They'd also inspect it. Carmen of the era had to inspect cars to make sure that they were watertight. And so you'll often see something that's not modeled very often because they don't see the tops of the cars, but in the area, you would see cars that would have tar stripes on the uh, ribs because they would go up there and tar the ribs to make sure that they were uh, they were watertight. They, there are a lot of nuances that you can put into your into your operation if you'd like to bring cars, uh, stocks of grain cars, over to one area to be cleaned and inspected and prepped for shipping to the elevators. And then when they get to the elevators, they would get, again, coopered, as you say. But the NP and the Sioux Line, come August, they would be sending letters to the AAR demanding that railroads return their boxcars because both of them had had good quality boxcars post-World War II, whereas uh, the railroads on the East Coast most of their boxcars were worn out. and they, they couldn't invest in new ones, so they were hoarding boxcars from the Midwest. And uh, the railroads had to get help from the AAR to get these things shipped back. So it was not unusual to have strings of boxcars in the yards prepped to go out for grain pickup before grain season.
1: So somebody, let's say, Greg, I'll go to you. Like, you're modeling a huge brewery. So it's always products in. Are you shipping out any products from your brewery in hoppers, or is it all just hops and so forth? And I also noticed that you have a large enough yard for off-spotting products too. Does that play into your
3: operations? Yeah, that plays into my operations because you know I have the premise that the, the brewery accepts rice, grains, hops, barley, etc. So as the guy operating the brewery job you bring what cars are there but then once you get to the brewery foreman of the brewery then tells you exactly which cars they actually want at this point in time and of course they're going to want the cars that have been sitting the longest so you know first in first out kind of thing so you might have to pull some cars out of the off spot and then some of the cars that you brought aren't needed that trip so then they get placed into the off spot so it, it makes her a you know a more interesting operation than just dragging, you know, six or eight grain hoppers over there and just shoving them into the brewery. But one of the questions I have that that I don't know, and maybe you guys know a little bit more about this, is it's when you're unloading, is there a chance for like contamination? I know like for corn syrup, they don't like to contaminate the various grades of corn syrup and the various hoses that they're unloading. So, for uh, you know, if if I'm bringing a hopper of rice over, can I spot it on the same track that I had just brought, you know, a hopper of corn last time? Does do things need to get cleaned in between, or does that really matter? You know, if I got 50,000 bushels of corn, is one grain of rice gonna matter if it gets mixed in there?
4: (laughs) I mean, I guess I would look at it from the standpoint of from a mill getting it is the cleaning house is gonna clean whatever the product is, so if it does have. Some a corn or rice or some byproduct that is in there with let's say the oats, it's gonna go through the cleaning house and that stuff gets kicked out, and that's what goes out into that waste car that eventually gets shipped out. So I don't mean to kind of pivot on this just a little bit. Dave uh, has a number of elevators on his railroad, and with a number of elevators on your railroad, you can spot boxcars at an industry for you know, waste or cardboard or byproduct or anything that might be needing to go out and you don't think a 50 foot box car in a more modern era because dave you're 1970 on your operations with your elevators do you incorporate some of that type of thought process in uh in ops
6: i do in the the winona elevators there's you know one of them represents Base state knowing and the other one is this froder malting company so both of them have clean out tracks so that the uh you know the the loads are coming in in covered hoppers because they're both milling the product there, milling it or malting it. So the box cars that do show up have to go to the clean-out track to get cleaned out. I've never actually come up with a, a movement to pick up the waste product, so that's an interesting idea. You know, I thought I was on top of it with just having a clean-out track, but now I think I can add a little bit more just for that reason. And the other elevators... You know, the, the country elevators on the railroad, they wouldn't have to necessarily get moved from the loading spout. But I could just add a bunch of trash piles in that area just to represent the waste. Because I'm sure that, that those are one car now and then maybe two or three cars a week. So there wouldn't be as much junk piling up compared to the big processing elevators like Bay State and Froder you know where it's you know they're they're doing dozens of cars a day probably in those places.
1: David with the smaller elevators are you representing that has the farmers bringing truckloads to the elevator and yep. then the elevators are loading it into the rail cars yep. to take to
6: the Exactly. Millers? Okay. They're either taking them to the mills or they're taking them to these big, you know, places like you'd see up in Duluth Superior. Right. You know, where they get loaded Yeah, the export elevators. So you're so modeling
1: the, the outbound traffic. Nothing's coming in except to, like you said, those mill. Those huge milling companies. Yeah,
6: just. Okay. But, and there's there's actually a third one because I, you know, I built this model of lacrosse milling, and that's an animal food processing place. So they get covered hoppers loaded with whatever it is that they use to make animal feed. So hey, Dave. Yes.
2: You could also have a car that circulates around dropping off drain doors to those farmer elevators.
6: Yeah, that's not a bad idea either, you know, because I, it seems like that there was a guy in Illinois that used to, if I'm not mistaken, he did something like that on his railroad. Yeah. yeah.
2: Rich Ramirez yeah. is starting to do that as well.
6: Yeah, so that's... It's a,
2: it's a home road car and it drops, you know, goes from elevator to elevator dropping off however many grain doors they think they need.
6: Yeah, and, and the elevators that I have, you know, the, the ones in Stoddard and Genoa and Prairie du Chien all have, like, um, I don't remember which company made these neat little grain trucks. You know, I think Athern might have made some, you know, tractor-trailer rigs, and there's always a couple of those that are backed up into the, to the unloading pit, if you will. So I, I try to make sure that all the, if you want to call them country elevators, You know, they all have some grain tractor tractor trailer rigs waiting to, to do their dump. I'm sure everybody knows about it, but there's a really good Canadian grain board, black and white elevator movie. You know, it's actually a film or movie, whatever you want to call it, that you can find on the Internet that shows the whole process of a farmer dumping his stuff into the pit, checking the moisture, running it up through the, you know, these Peck elevators, you know, to the to the Gerber, I guess that's what they call it, where, you know, it, it gets moved out into the different bins and compartments that are in the elevator. And if you haven't watched it, you should. It's kind of rustic because it was, <laughs> you know, it's 40 years old probably, but it's great fun watching that thing. And it's the Canadian grain board or Canadian film board, I forget. But if you just yeah. go on YouTube and search for Canadian Grain Elevator story, you'll find it. It's a fan, It's like eighteen minutes long, and it it's really a fantastic. You yeah. know, it's, it's like the kind of movie you wanted to see when you were in school, so you could waste a half an hour. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and that, we'll, waiting. We'll, to, we'll get they, that posted
2: they watch that after they listen to the podcast. Yeah, uh, yeah right. Exactly. We'll
6: post
5: we'll post that link on the Facebook page at uh, today's point that. That is a great film, but one of the things it shows is that the cars get spotted, and then they have to—they get spotted by the railroad on the, the track. Then they have to be spotted for loading by the elevator, and, and in this case, the guy does it by hand. And then, when it's done, he has to roll it out to where the uh, railroad will pick it up again. The spotting of cars at the grain elevator and taking them away was was more complicated than most. Model railroaders understand. Uh, Rich talks about sending out boxcar trains where it's just a train of empty boxcars, and they spot boxcars close to the elevators, close to the town that has elevators, and then as the crews come in, they can switch them in and out of the uh, in and out of the grain elevator. But this idea that there's two or three moves inside the elevator kind of goes back to what Mike Jordan does. And a lot of times the grain elevator didn't have room to spot those three or four times they had to be moved. And we, as model railroaders, it's it's a challenge for how we're going to move them so that we don't get crazy, but we still uh, we still replicate that. And then when grain cars got picked up during the high grain season, a lot of them became what they call rollers, and that is they were put on a siding or brought to a a yard. And kind of held there until the, until the uh, order actually went through, and so they knew which place to go to. In the uh, 70s, there was a big strike at the docks in Duluth, and the Sioux Line had every siding between uh, the Dakotas, western Minnesota, just stuffed with boxcars full of grain because there was no place for it to go. And so you can do
6: lots of fun things like that to add to your operating interest. You have to get some HO scale mice then, you know, to to put around those sightings because yeah. <laughs> all that stuff is leaking out of the cars anyway. So you know the rodent population <laughs> increases wherever they do that. Yeah. Yeah. Mini for <laughs> model, you. So Mini we'll go to Mike. There.
1: Let me go to Mike Jordan. We've heard from just about everybody that these grain cars do make multiple moves, and you are the king of multiple moves with original little operation on uh, the reefers and perishables. Do you think that would be applicable to grain cars? And you also have a grain elevator on your layout, don't you, a little feed mill or something for all the farmers in the (coughs) Central Valley?
0: I do. uh, I'm one of the 99 percenters. You know, there are a few one percenters out there with no elevators. Elevators were in every small town. And if they didn't ship out grain, they were bringing in grain for animal feed. You can model the other end of the grain movement by having a small elevator that custom-made feed for chickens or ducks or geese or cattle. And I think one of the things too about grain is it was graded. So you would have Durham red wheat versus just normal wheat. And then all these wheats had different grades of quality. So you have a small yard, and once you get a dozen of these cars, they could be broken apart, each grade be put onto its own track. So that adds to the movement of grain, which kind of falls into the moving of produce. With refrigerator cars, I can determine which car is going to haul what type of produce. So you have to have a marshalling yard to have a quality or quantity of these different cars. And that would be the same thing with grain. If you're shipping flax, it takes a car that is watertight because that stuff will find the smallest hole and leak out. So then these cars that are hauling grain also have different quality of readiness, I guess. So then that adds another movement. And just like Ken was saying, that these way freights would go along and drop a dozen cars in every town and keep on going. Then the local switcher would come in and sort these 12 cars out. And the Farmers Union elevator had cold beer in an ice chest on the dock. He'd get the better cars than the guy down at the other end that was pretty stingy with his lukewarm coffee. You know, that's another part of the operation that can be modeled. Just like Joe was saying, before harvest, you'd have to have like a LCL car full of grain doors that would go from town to town and drop these things off. So there are a lot of on-modeled movements of grain cars, but like William said, does this get... To the point where it's a nuisance. You kind of got to know your operators too, at what level of competency they are.
1: Yeah, how many bags in a boxcar could you put of carrot seeds? Is that what you're after there, Mike? No. <laughs> <laughs>
4: well, now he's on the flax seed, Tom. He's well, flax, the flax seed. thats right. How many flax seeds per acre?
1: Yeah. But no, that's what grain modeling agriculture does. I think that was a wonderful rabbit hole, you know, about the corn and stuff. Greg asked the question about mm. can you dump a car of rice and then a car of hops? And you mentioned something, William, about a clean out room. And so that's where maybe they might get mixed and then they are contaminated, we'll say. And then that product would go to waste. What would they do with that product? Would that get shipped out for feed via
4: truck or train? Well, what we'd do is we'd sweep it all in, whatever, even the stuff that was on the shop floor or in the um, the factory floor. When we swept the floors, there was a grate on the third floor. We'd shove the cart into the elevator and we'd take it up there and we'd dump anything down there, right? So it went through the whole process and whatever was dumped into that grate would get blown into a car that did go to the burning. That would be the byproduct going out to what was called material handling. So anything that you have that's, waste of sorts and you're asking about whether it's bad or good stuff the the old flour or you know holes that were just laying on the ground you're going to just sweep them all up and just get rid of them well actually the one thing that's a byproduct that's interesting too is bran right so when you're in the process of making flour you create bran and that bran they would put into and you say cheerios well they would actually put it into the kids cereals they would go into lucky charms (laughs) and, and stuff like that so they were using it But that stuff all went out separate, and that's where they'd be able to take advantage of using all of the stuff that was in a product when it came in.
2: Kids are tough. Yeah. I think, you know,
1: but that'd be interesting. You know, we've talked about who makes Cheerios and Lucky Charms. It'd be interesting to see, you know, if you had a plant that made, you know, like Captain Crunch, so you'd have Hopper's Cards full of sugar and. Box cars full of fiberglass because I think that's the only two ingredients in that. But
4: <laughs> I thought that was mini wheats.
1: Oh, mini-weeds, yeah, about the same thing. Texas, yeah.
0: um, just go down to Northfield and go to Multi Meal. You know, they make cereal that comes in giant gunny sacks. You know, bulk <laughs> cereal. So I've often wondered how many hopper cars of corn is converted into box cars of. Cornflake or Cheerios or whatever, and just like Tom said, they they'd bring in hopper cars of
6: sugar. If you're right I'll next door to a dairy, then you could have cereal, and you wouldn't and less supply a milk.
4: What you think about the consumption drink, drink, drink. Though, of like uh, like flour as an example? I the these carts that we used to have were just a big, huge, gray garbage cart if you can think of the state fairgrounds or any activities that you've been and you see somebody pushing one of those huge gray garbage bins one of those filled up with flour was the equivalent of roughly a thousand boxes of cheerios that's just an example of conversion i had a problem one time at the plant where it had blown out of the car and i had swept up 10 of those big huge garbage things so i essentially kind of wasted ten thousand boxes of cheerios (laughs) And, no wonder you know,
0: there's $17 <laughs> a box.
4: And that all, all that stuff did. I dumped it into that floor, and that all stuff went back through, and it just got blown into the car that got brought down to the U.M.
6: Never hey, to be William. seen again.
2: Yeah. I think they call that nice shooting, Tex. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Perks. So let me go to Greg Dahl here because the brewery you have – the byproduct, we've talked about this animal feed, but from a brewery, the animal feed is wet and they can use these crappy cars and it doesn't go far because there's no money in it. So you'd have these home road cars. You know, I used to see, they talk about this in the breweries of like Milwaukee. So I assume it's in St. Louis. Do you model anything like that, Greg, or going to?
3: Yeah, I stole that idea. Actually, the Milwaukee Road Historical Association put out uh, a magazine about the beer line and there's, there's plenty of people who model that beer line. And I stole that idea where the, the brewery produces a byproduct. Uh, it's used mainly in, at least in the beer line in Milwaukee, it's used for animal feed. And there was a right on the line itself, I believe. So they just hauled in these old crappy 40-foot boxcars that couldn't go offline. They they drag them from the by, you know, the leftovers from the brewery and just haul it down to the animal feed lot. So I, I kind of stole that idea on my layout. Uh, one thing I'm, I'm interested in actually is, when did 40-foot boxcars end and covered hoppers take over? And, and I'm also wondering about, is it different on lightly traveled lines like say, out in the Dakotas or something?
5: Well, by golly, I just happened to have done some research on that. We interviewed a guy by the name of Gary Brosh, who in the 1970s was the uh, agent for the Sioux line out in Glenwood. And he would tell stories about the fact that into the 70s, there were a lot of smaller grain elevators out in the country that could only take 40-foot boxcars and couldn't take the 100-ton cars. But I'll give you just an example of the Sioux Line. In the 1965 uh, equipment register, the Sioux Line had 50 covered hoppers with capacity of 4,427 cubic feet. In the 1970 car builder's register, they had one thousand covered hoppers of the forty four twenty seven and the forty seven fifty cubic feet, so just in those five years, the Sioux line invested in nine hundred and fifty cars to handle the uh, higher capacity grain, but they were still handling forty foot box cars until uh, until they the smaller elevators if they couldn't afford to upgrade their track to, hunt, to handle 100-ton car, they were just put out of business. If so I that's a good, Yeah, go ahead.
2: Obviously, Ken is right because he's done research and he's very smart. The Canadians, uh, some of their lightly-traveled branch lines into the early 90s were still using 40-foot box cars yep. because of the the track structure and some of these smaller elevators did not have the equipment to load the, the big covered hoppers. So, right. as Ken said, they held on as long as they could and then they either updated or went out of business or right. you're trucking the grain to the larger elevators that have that equipment. When well, that added truck detail on the distance. outside of
4: the elevator, like you say, Joe, some of those older wood ones added that hose outside yeah, and yep. they right. and then top load. That's an added yep. little detail that kind of makes it interesting.
5: Right. Yeah, That uh, film that Dave Hamilton referenced a little earlier that shows him loading a uh, boxcar was 1981, and it's still doing a 40-foot boxcar.
0: Well, they ran 40-foot boxcars up to the Hudson Bay because elevator hadn't converted to hopper car on loading. So it did stick around quite a while mm-hmm. in these remote places.
5: Right. The challenge, not the challenge, the opportunity is you can tell a story of your grain elevator with what cars are there, But you can also tell the story of the era of your railroad by the things that you do on the elevators. Do you still have, uh, are you using the modern hose that William referred to? Do you have all the drying capabilities? As we got into the 70s, they built big grain dryers on the outside of cars because they could get more money out of the grain if they would dry it to a certain percentage before they shipped it out. So these are ways that you can reflect your era in the structure that you build.
2: As I drive down to Omaha to see my son when he was first in college and now is uh, working down at Creighton, but down Highway 60, every one of these towns has the old elevator still standing, still standing, and you can see all the old technology. And then most of them have had either a new elevator built or an addition put on that has the more modern stuff. And, and some of the real modern plants, like the soybean to uh, diesel uh, conversion or the, the ethanol plants are really modern and don't have the older sh- stuff, but still fascinating. And a lot of them have their own little switcher parked there. So mm-hmm. there's Jeep 59s or Jeep 39s and SW7s and all kinds of stuff. So it's kind of a cool little trip for me. You
0: right. ever see any uh, GE 70
2: tonners? <laughs> no, those are only in California and they're bright <laughs> <black> yellow.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I'm really working <laughs> So, like, like you brought up, I'm going to Dave Hamilton, that these grain elevators are very neat structures to model. They're very, you, you know, unique structures. Is that right, Dave? I mean, you've scratch-built a couple, right?
6: Oh, yeah, and that's what really got me into the grain elevators, you know, it's because you'd see all these pictures, and then even on trips where, you know, there's the original elevator, and then at some point they build an addition, but maybe they built it at a right angle to the original one, and then they need storage bins and then bigger storage bins and then all that stuff is hooked up with these great external grain legs with pipes running in every direction that you can think of and you know there's protrusions that stick out from them you know like a little head house or whatever they're called they're just fascinating to look at you know especially like you know elevators that were built you know pre-war maybe and then added on to and then added on to and then added on to and you, then you get into the whole thing with the outer cladding with the rusty looking panels of galvanized upsidazium or whatever they use. A little grain dryer and then a bigger grain dryer and then another conveyor pipe to go this way or that way. And you start looking then at slip form elevators, you know, that where you'll see that, you know, that's concrete that they just kind of, you know, there might be six in the core or 10 or 12, but they always get added on to and those are just like the smaller ones and then you'll do it build us and start modeling more accurately height-wise elevators you know where they're they're quite imposing you know when you if you try to really get them to be the right height so there's it's like a never-ending architectural explosion of throwing things together and then adding on to it and then hooking them all up to each other And quite frankly, that's without even exploding one of them, because even that can happen, right? You know, where you get some crazy fires and explosions. You could even model one all blown out on one side and then a new one right next to it, which I never thought about doing. So I might just go blow one up tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Firecrackers and
4: operations. That's going to be a new twist.
6: Well, yeah. (laughs) I think we have a new sponsor
1: now.
6: (laughs) Yeah, because exploding. That's where they make popcorn. Exploding grain. (laughs) but there's so let's there's talk no about the details it. yeah yep so let's talk so, about the
1: details around an elevator
6: where you get David, dryers you can just
1: start what what do you add
6: well first of all external storage bins so all of my elevators are kit bashed and they start out with basic walther's elevator kits and then i add rick's products the smaller bins and walther's makes larger bins you know, in different sizes, and then you have to hook them all up to each other, and that's when you can get these, you know, elevator legs to connect them all. Between the dryers and the external bins and the outside piping or conveyors or augers, I'm not always familiar with all the terms, but, you know, there there's all kinds of details. Just before you even start adding trash and pallets and old mice Pigeons. bodies. Yeah, it, it just... They're really intriguing things to look at. And just for ideas, there's a Facebook site called Grain Elevators of North America that, you know, they've got some fantastic photographs on there that people from all over the country contribute, you know, to those pages. So those are the neat details. Dryers, more elevator pieces, storage bins, bigger storage bins, augers, outside augers that you can, you know, just connect any old place on them. So there. And Rick's and Walther's both offer quite a bit of detail parts for those things, and I'm sure some of these you know three d resin printers are starting to do that too.
4: Iowa scaled engineering that does the proto throttle has a line yep. of grain stuff that you can do yep. bins and they got ph- phenomenal details. And to even piggyback on what you're saying, Dave, about the building actually the headhouse itself as a mill as an elevator starts getting bigger, they need to replace blowers or sifters or motors and they'll cut doors into the side of the thing with the crane yeah. and bring yeah. stuff up that doesn't fit in the freight elevator. I mean, it, it, you look at it and you think, well, geez, I mean, it's a huge hole in the side of that building. That's a ways up there. And then there there they are hefting up a, you know, a sifter to be able to replace it. I mean, how else are they going to get it up there I and mean, they're not going to be able to get it up the staircase or up the elevator inside.
3: Exactly. Um, so adding,
4: adding those type of details, I think are, you know, extremely beneficial. And then of course, across the top of our, elevators so often we think that you got to have the conveyor exposed or have it in that little house all the way across sometimes they're inside the top mm-hmm. of your your silo so you don't need to have that little house running all the way across the top just looking at them i mean they all have a little bit different quirks and, and different you know nuances that are involved there i mean do you guys ever run into i mean when it comes to modeling your own i know dave you've kit bashed a lot on your own looking at the prototype and then learning like the height of an elevator, the height of a silo. And do you take that into consideration or is the Walther's height just good enough?
6: I mean, I've personally kind of stuck with the Walther's, you know, whatever they have available, but they get a kind of an illusion of height when you start adding, you know, the grain lakes to them. Cause you can, when I've done that, I've, you know, most of the elevators I've done have more than one and I always make them different heights, you know, so that it kind of gives the illusion of, elevation i suppose you know so i haven't really done many of the slip form type which is what you have Yep. you know and there i because you're using pvc pipe or whatever or oatmeal boxes you can stack them up as high as you want but the, the ones that i've kit bashed i think are, are all they all look pretty good height wise
4: well then also foundations i think we a lot of times overlook a foundation i found it nice as a modeler to be able to create a base One, I'm able to lift out. That's obviously nice. But with the elevators, I'm able to slide the actual silos kind of onto a a little more of a a cutout little footing that I'm Mm -hmm. able to set it into. And then that seam between the transition to the scenery to my actual silo, the headhouse, I can take the headhouse back to my workbench and work on it and then stick it back in there. And it kind of clicks in instead of trying to do it all on one thing, then do, do my scenery right up against it. Guys, look at foundations or kind of how you apply your elevator to your railroad?
5: Because I'm in the 164 scale modeling and there's so many 164 scale model farmers out there, uh, I posted a photo of my grain elevator complex and I was immediately deluged with suggestions and pictures. (laughs) And to uh, Dave's point, there's an incredible amount of detail. And people will send you pictures of all sorts of things and and explain to you how the grain moved from one place to the other. It's a rabbit hole that you can go down for a long, long time if you like.
2: William, how do you make your bases for your headhouses and that kind of stuff? Is that just plastic you cut to size, or do you? Well, use so the laser I cutter
5: the, or? The, the physical
4: headhouse itself is styrene, and the one that I'm working on currently was actually a piece of styrene that came with our new washer and dryer. It was <laughs> meant it was meant for when the guy was actually able to pull the dolly back. It didn't push yep. up underneath the washer. Well, I saw that thing come out, and I like. This Dang. is huge. I mean, it was a nice big piece, 36 <laughs> inches wide, about, you know, maybe a foot. You know, I ran through the table saw, and that's what I, I thought it was going to be a mock up, and it turned into a little bit more permanent. So, <laughs> but the bases themselves, I actually put them onto masonite. So, it's okay. masonite cut to create my foundation. And then the structures are styrene that kind of fit into their place. And inside the footprint of that building is roughly that I just draw it on the masonite, and then I cut it out, and then it's able to fit like right in there. rich
2: ramirez has started because he's got a laser cutter right so he started making those design that piece and cut it out of styrene and then multiple layers and stick it down and then he can like you say click his elevators right on
4: and that's slick i mean a great way to be able to take a building out or let a operator knock it over and it doesn't you know
2: (laughs) oh i should try that
4: yeah (laughs) maybe for a depot or the a tower. tower. A tower.
1: <laughs> so do you guys, anybody have, you know, I think of an elevator of like a car puller. You know, Joe, you mentioned a small critter. You guys modeled a spillage. Do they do the right color? The doors, like William always said, they had the doors open and everybody's hanging. You know, workers are outside. Cardboard doors, fans. Air slides, if you're loading them, wouldn't they have hoses? Outside lights.
4: Would have hoses, but even either. Outside lights, it's
1: twenty four seven. And then I'll Joe, you have the auger and grates, you know, and then bags of flowers and seed. Do you guys have it would you guys want those details or do you like
2: those or
6: who has that? I should be adding more of that stuff. See, that's a trouble with the podcast. Now I've got to start adding even more details to these things.
2: You're free tomorrow,
6: aren't you? Pretty much all day, yeah.
4: <laughs> well, I'll tell you from a food commodity standpoint, General Mills, you had to clean the inside shed where cars were pushed in. If grass and stuff started to grow up, we had to chisel it out and then put it into a bucket and pitch it because they didn't. the health inspector would come through and they would check to make sure that there wasn't any random growth or things that were taking place around the food commodity that could be obviously getting into your food. So keep your inside of your building clean And then all the stuff that got pitched outside, let it grow. Mike, do you have anything like
1: that on yours? Mike Jordan? I've just
0: got one spot for my uh, elevator, but I'm just remembering as a kid, um, all the old tractors and uh, equipment that was you know, alongside the tracks. And I can't remember if it was a farmer's union or not, but they had an old tractor that didn't have any tires on it. And it was all on a kind of a c- cylinder block base. That was the winch. Somebody have to go start the tractor up. And, oh, sweet. <laughs> and then, you know, put the cable on the hook on the car and pull it out of the way and pull the next one in. You know, there's all these little things that, You know, especially in the 50s that were cobbled together, but now in the 2000s, there's, you know, Toyota makes whatever you need and, you know, (laughs) brand new objects. So in the 50s, it was, or especially the 40s, it was whatever they could find and,
4: yeah. Well, and Mike, with your cable pulling, another little detail you add inside the actual headhouse is a viewing window. When the guy would hook it up, he would go back inside and then look out the window as he creeped the car in case that thing snapped. Yeah, so if you're modeling sure. it and you put a little guy stand in there, he's already, you know, he's in danger zone. If you know, you're modeling this, the fifties. This is before
2: OSHA. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't that much paperwork. Do you guys know where the first slip form elevator in the world was poured?
6: Is that in Hopkins or St. Louis I mean, Pike? Was part, right, yeah. right
2: along my favorite railroad, the Minneapolis and St. Louis. Uh, it was a Washburn Crosby elevator. It has that Nordicware.
6: Nordicware, yeah. And, yeah.
2: Wear, yeah. It, and it says Nordicware on it. They filled it once to prove the concept and never filled it again. But it's a historic building, and they can't do anything with it. It's if you go on that trail, it's on the side of the trail there.
6: No kidding. Yeah. yeah. Now, Greg, you
2: have a.
1: Let me talk, ask Greg this: you have a total yard dedicated to your grain elevators. Are you going to scenic that with like spillage, and I'm sure with mini prints or something that attracts the natives by all the animals? It's a free feed lot. You could actually model deer and everything else going in there is that kind of on, on the horizon for you
3: that's why i hate this podcast because <laughs> it gives me all sorts of other things i need to start doing but yeah i mean i would love to i've already i've already bought the pigeons so we just need to get <laughs> more of their animals out there
4: are they going to come flying up though when you roll a car by <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, have to, I'll have to hook up an Arduino for that, I think. Oh, see. Arduino, I've got
1: a drink here. Well, wasn't uh, the, the Hiawatha, I remember I, some of your videos, William, it was all the Canadian geese sitting down there.
4: Yeah, and a lot of, yeah. lot of poop.
1: A lot of poop, and I think somebody thought they were cats or something. I remember that, but <laughs> I suppose you guys need pigeons like I need seagulls, so we're not too far off. And so who would have the 40-foot doors? I know, would that be David and Joe, you get those cardboard doors laying around? Yeah, the, the yeah. grand doors. Yep, because you guys course, would need the model. new ones yeah. in some place like William would have the broken
5: ones. Well, well back in the uh, into the '60s, those doors were actually wood. On the Facebook page, I'll post a, a photo of a stack of the grand doors that we collecting outside the mills off the Milwaukee down the in the Hiawath area. <laughs> we had a friend that lived out in Western Minnesota, and he. Had a collection of grain doors that the Great Northern was their mill and they owned the mill, but they would take those grain doors home and build things out of them. So, the inside you go inside their barn and, and it says Great Northern Railway on the wood that's making up the side.
6: There you go. Well, so. some
0: of them were uh, recycled and they had a metal tag on them that they had to be returned to, you know, Northern Pacific or Great Northern. Right. And then they'd redistribute you know, the grain doors
4: mm-hmm. you know, back out.
0: And this is before the cardboard.
4: Right. Well, so where is that little, that shift from the wood to cardboard? Are we talking 50s or into the 60s? Yeah,
0: late 50s, I would guess, when they nope. finally perfected, you know,
2: sturdier cardboard. So Jeff Wilson talks about that in the uh, the grain book that Kalmbach put out. And it was late 50s, early 60s. And then before that, they like you say, they would segregate them by railroads there'd be piles of great northern and np and sioux line and they would like you say ship them back so that they could redistribute yeah but can you talk about a balance
4: oh go ahead tom
2: what would they do with the actual boxcar door so it would they would slide it open when they were ready to cooper the the car and so from one side they'd go up and it's they're like 18 inches by six feet maybe so they'd put three or four of them on, seeing, on the inside. You know, I remember then, seeing boxcars without the doors on. Well, that could be, but they would, the doors would slide closed over these, these grain doors. That was the okay. ideal. And then later on, they came up, the uh, car manufacturers came up with a door that had a, you know, a regular boxcar door, but it had a little square door in the top. Yep. And they were, would seal tight enough against the inside of the car that they could open the little baby door Run the grain in there, and then it would be sealed up. They wouldn't have to cooper those cars. A doggy door, okay. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, but it was
0: on the top. Sometimes they were put on the ends of the car, and then they would load from one end and then load from the other. And did some really giant to shake it it, to make it level or something?
6: They'd strap a big vibrator to the side of the car. (laughs) Yes,
1: (laughs) strap a vibrator. Did they add (laughs) hatches to some different
0: podcast,
6: Dave? Oh, sorry.
0: Only on the sides, not on the top. Yep. At least I've never seen hatches?
5: anything on the top. Yeah. I, I don't recall ever seeing hatches on the top.
4: Well, the hatches Milwaukee the Road top. did prototype versions where they started into, they actually put it on a 40-foot boxcar. There was actually a dry flow that they cut in, and they put a boxcar door on the side so it was multi multi-purpose.
2: Oh, Hatch, cool. Hatches oh, okay. on
4: the top, yeah. door on the side, and clearly it didn't stick because yeah. they only made one one or two of them.
2: Well, most of the time, a boxcar with a hatch is a hide car, and you don't want to mix hides and grain.
4: No. <laughs> <laughs> On the M and St. Alley again.
2: Well, yeah. No, in central Minnesota. Let's not insult the, the M and St. Al here. The, the car that's in the um History Museum da- over in uh, St. Paul has all the markings for the different kinds of grain, what is a full load, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's like a PS1 car, so it's a 40-foot boxcar that's it's a Sioux line one if memory serves correctly
5: it is yeah the only thing uh, it, I remember so, is
0: oats, oats was the highest mark on the wall
5: yeah the actual
4: car types that would go in and dave this might be positioned a little bit more to you from when you had the box cars versus hoppers going into an elevator are you mixing them in are you just shoving box cars into a certain one or are you just putting the jumbo hoppers because they're 1962 to 1964, they start to surface with the bigger hoppers?
6: Well, I've got, you know, for the, the little the country elevators are mostly boxcar traffic. And once in a while, I'll send a covered hopper. But for Bay State and Froder, all the loads for those places are coming in in covered hoppers. And I've got some that are actually labeled. I was able to get some cars that, that say Bay State Milling on them, covered hoppers, and the same thing with Froder Malting. I had the proper decals for that. And my lacrosse milling place, just, and this is where I kind of, you know, I, I alter time a little bit. I use the geography bender to, to change time so it works for me. And when, I, when you go by lacrosse milling, you know, down along Highway 35 in Wisconsin, it's nothing but covered hoppers there. I send a mix of covered hoppers, you know, with incoming product and then box cars to take the loads out of that particular model. I guess I kind of mix it up. That's the basic answer to your question.
4: Well, then so. even the cars, you kind of touched on that there. I know the Hiawatha Elevator District for Nokomis, they'll have 15, 20 cars that are there basically on site ready to go in to either get loaded or get unloaded or whatever it might be. Yeah. Do any of you guys have that little side staging? Do you treat an elevator that way that you kind of have their own, you know, slot of cars that they're able to kind of draw from?
5: Yeah, I, I do that. When when you're operating up into where the most grain elevators are, I'll have a, a car a train go up there and spot a couple of extra empties. And then when the uh, crew comes up and they go to the depot to get the instructions from the agent, the agent will say in these two off spots locations, our boxcars that have to go in here, and by the way, the boxcars that are in there don't have a destination yet, so you've got to put them off spot, and I want them put over there. So that just adds, you have a seven-car capacity going into that area, and there'll be two or three cars up there to operate. It just makes the the job of the crew a little bit more interesting as they've got to balance all that. And the good part then is they're in town longer, and so in some cases – because you can, you can load a car in, a, in an hour or two, you know, if the crew's really, if the elevator's on it, they can spot a car and go back on their way out and pick up another car. And the whole idea is in that era and that time of month is you got to move these things as fast as possible because the grain's coming in and you got to get it out.
4: Well, I think that's good. I mean, when you talk about operations kind of in general and Ken, how you're talking about very specific movements I find, and at least I've kind of said, uh, from an operating perspective, when you're working with a mill like this or an elevator, you have a beginning operator. Let them just get the cars there. Right. You don't don't want to bog them down too much, and then you could have an intermediate operator and say, "Okay, get it on the right track." Now we're doing we're getting better. And if you want to go advanced operator, then we'll say, "Get them to the right spot." And I think that is where you can, for an elevator, you can take it to just getting them there to all the way to getting it to the right spot. Now. I mean, Joe operated on mine, and the opportunity to be able to go through and do that. Is that a complicated thing for you, Joe? I mean, I'm not trying to bend your ear or pick on you here, but was that a, a good thing to have, those inner building movements versus not?
6: And I was Did there this, with them, oh. you know, and I thought that, that that night that we were there, that makes made perfect sense to have all those, like, inner building moves or whatever from one yeah. spot to the next. So I agree with you. You know, you can just get the cars there and then, and I do it, you know, like in my Winona section, those cars are multiple moves. They get, you know, moved around a couple times during a session before they actually get picked up and, you know, and leave. I'm already doing that, that part with the larger facilities, you know, I, I definitely do that.
5: And William, you make such a good point about the fact that you can have a level of operation for the people that are brand new and just learning and then you can add in some more of those prototypical nuances that happen for the more experienced operators.
4: I feel like an element there is if somebody's hot dogging and they're like, I can get through this so fast, and they start just jamming along, they like, all right, slow your roll there, Einstein. If you're so bright, <laughs> try this next move. And that that's where I think you can add the difficulty based on the individual. And right. like uh, Elevator T in the High Elevator District has one area that their elevator has their own dedicated switcher just for that elevator so you do not touch the cars that are in there they deal with them you leave them the cars that they need out on another track but they are the ones that are going to switch that so you could always have that as an alternate job on your railroad is to say no that one's got a dedicated switcher it's in the headhouse or it's in that shed open the door up pull that switcher out make your moves and then move on down the line. So you can, you can even kind of mix up your elevator operations by adding something like that. Sure. Yeah, it's Good a great point.
1: place for a track mobile. And I know Greg does this. Greg lets his operators, and correct me if I'm wrong, Greg, if you go to the brewery, the brewery foreman comes out and says, I need this many cars of hops, this many of oats, and this much of rice. And then it's up to you as the operator to choose because, like you said, they want to choose the ones that are in the off spots or been there?
3: Yeah, that's exactly what what happens. It's really up to the the operator or the engineer then to figure out which cars he's got to get over there. He might have brought a brand-new car that the – brewery needs, but if if there's the exact same car, same commodity already in the off spots, he's got to get that one over there first. Actually, what you were just mentioning, William, uh, Dan does on his, on his Dan dozo who's not here tonight, with Shire Malting, he does exactly that, where he's got a dedicated switcher. He actually makes that a completely separate job. So there's actually another operator doing just that.
4: And I think that is our same. I do it with a little 25 ton or 30 ton switcher. He's got, uh, I believe it's an SW1 that is able to switch that. But it does add a nice little element. Like you say, it's another job for an operator to have.
5: It's another opportunity to have a 70-ton switch or two. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) If
3: only someone would make one. (laughs)
4: Well, Mike has to finish his first, and then they'll make it.
1: Yeah, and repeat
4: it, I'll have it out the next week. So,
1: All right, guys. Well, thanks. This was a a lively discussion, and once again, it's probably a topic we should revisit. And it's nice to see that all all of you have grain elevators on your layout so you can teach cavemen like me how to do this. (laughs) So with that, I think we'll bid everyone good night, and we'll see you at the next podcast. So say good night, everyone. Good night, everyone. Good night, everyone. been listening to the crossing game the official podcast of the twin cities division you can find us on facebook in our group the twin cities division of the nmra you can email us at tcdnmra@gmail.com. at gmail.com thank you for listening and don't forget to subscribe for future podcasts
5: Would all right, be,
1: Joe, tell us all about your layout
5: now. <laughs> and, and Dave said, well, Joe's not here, so let me give you an intelligent answer.
6: <laughs> no, not quite.
2: <laughs>
4: wow.
6: No, that's no, not true.
4: I think <laughs> Dave defended himself. He said a semi-intelligent answer. <laughs> that's what I
5: said, sort of semi-intelligent.
2: <laughs> yeah, right.
5: Yeah, you know, Teresa, between this wedding and, and the dance recital, she's, she's really did. becoming a burden. You
2: ain't
0: let me tell you. I want to say that whole lot.
4: Ken Ken has held a pretty straight face after the comment. I think
1: that's the outtake right there.
5: Yeah, I I don't want to. I guess I don't want to say that as long as I'm going to come over there Saturday morning.
2: (laughs) Oh, she'll be gone, she'll be at dance class, so that's fine. We'll be waiting for you.